And first, a quick word from our podcast sponsor. FactSet delivers superior data, analytics, and flexible technology to help more than 170,000 users see and seize opportunities sooner. For over 40 years, we have given investment professionals the edge to outperform with informed insights, workflow solutions across the portfolio lifecycle, and industry-leading support from dedicated specialists. Through market changes and technological progress, we're proud to have been recognized with multiple awards for our analytical and data-driven solutions, while staying connected to our clients and each other. Learn more at www.factset.com. Hey, everybody, and thanks again for joining us on The Sustainability Story. I'm Matt Orsog with CFA Institute, and today we have Susan Crumdike, Chair in Energy Transition Engineering at Harriet Watt University in Scotland. She's also an author and thought leader on energy transition engineering, and that's what we're going to talk about today. We've had too many you know, fancy finance people on this podcast, but we actually need to talk to someone who gets things done, so we're talking to an engineer. Susan, thanks for joining us. Sure, great to be here. And I just want to warn everybody, I'm talking to, to Susan. We were talking a little bit before things started out. Uh, she's she's uh, in Scotland, and a cow walked by, and I heard a cow mooing. So you may hear a cow mooing, so don't worry about that. That's that's natural ambient noise. <laughs> well, they seem to be settled down now. <laughs> okay, okay. Well, Susan, tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, how, you, how you got here, and what we're going to talk about a little today. Right. Well, I'm a, I'm a professor in mechanical engineering, so in the 1%. <laughs> and how did I get here where I'm working on energy transition? Well, I think I went into mechanical engineering because I wanted to work on sustainable energy. Yeah. And then in, I think it was 2007, I had one of those moments. So people can probably relate to one of those moments. And it was my, my young lad, his school, they had watched An Inconvenient Truth. Right. You remember that one? Yeah, yeah. And so he came home and he was quite, quite depressed about this. And he wanted to know, well, mom, all the sustainable energy stuff you're doing, that will work, right? That'll make it fine. And it was one of those moments where I had to sort of be honest with myself that while it felt really good to be a good person working on hydrogen and carbon capture and geothermal and renewables and efficiency and all that good stuff, that if I look at it from his perspective and actually look up at the whole system, no, that's not going to do the job. And 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 so I was honest with him and said, no, sorry, that that's not gonna not gonna do it. And he says, well, okay, then you have to figure out what to do. <laughs> it's a reasonable request. Yeah, it's a reasonable request. And and I I thought maybe that wasn't fair because how can one person figure out what we have to do or what what will work. Right. And so I, I took it on and he didn't let me forget either. Mom, have you figured that out <laughs> And so the research direction that it led me in was really interesting. And I found out a lot of history. I found out that, that really we could be in really worse place than we are now if engineering hadn't changed the way that it did in different right. points in time over the last century. Um, and so that, that's what's led me to where I am now. We're really all about engineering transitions, changes. Okay. 
Well, I came across you a couple months ago. I'm, you know, I live, fortunately or unfortunately, in this investor world. So I talk to all these investors all the time, and one of them had read your book, and, uh, and that's an I'll, early plug. I'll, I'll recommend the folks read your book. It's always great to get a new perspective on things. You know, I've been reading too many doom and gloom, climate change, biodiversity loss books. My wife teases me that I send, you know, the, the children aren't allowed to open my packages because it's always a, the end of the world, another end of the world book that I'm reading. But I hadn't really approached things, of course, from an engineering perspective. I'm not an engineer. And I thought that was fascinating. And so I thought it was great to read about that side of things. And it gets into what's really practical, what's doable, and how do you sit down, roll up your sleeves and do that. And so I want you to enlighten our, my audience a little bit about what exactly is transition engineering and kind of where, where has it come from, where is it now, and where is it going? Right. Well, first, you know, does everybody know what engineering is? You know, are, are, are pe- people picturing the minions, right? There's, just, there's somebody who just gets everything done, <laughs> makes things work. And that's true. I mean, it, that is the job, to make things work. Transition engineering is... Uh, the same as as other fields of engineering that are not about a, a particular artifact or particular object, a particular um, building, but they're about the way that building or that artifact, that, that manufactured good meets the needs of society. So the, the first type of discipline like this was safety engineering. That if you think back to the turn of the last century, 1900s, um, engineering was delivering um, all sorts of new new things, right? Um, Factory-made um, clothes, steam engines, steamships. You know, it was it was all it was all on, and the the economy was booming because of it. But there wasn't any such thing as safety. You know, the the, the Titanic was going to sink shortly. Boilers were blowing up left and right. Yeah, it wasn't safe to work in a factory. And then one day in 1911, another terrible disaster, and some engineers got together in Manhattan and said, you know what, we could do our jobs and not kill people. And that was the first one of these sort of corrective disciplines. There's been others since then. There's been a lot of them always following a massive disaster. Naval safety came after the sinking of the Titanic. And what do these disciplines do? Well, they, they look at how to get the job done how to serve humanity, and how to not have negative consequences, so preventing what's preventable. Um, what happened in the 70s when the oil embargo hit was that there was a panic, but it wasn't quite a disaster, was it? It, was a, it, it, it wasn't like that. And so we, we got this idea that we could um, substitute good things for bad things. So we were going to have sustainable things, sustainable energy, we were going to have domestically produced energy, so we didn't have to rely on imports. And that, that sort of idea that through innovation and new things, we could fix the problems of the old things. Well, a corrective discipline is one where you correct the problems of the, old, of the things you've already got. So the emergence of transition engineering is another one of those corrective disciplines within right. engineering. So right. in other words, if you, if you want things to be done right you know you got to call an engineer. Most people know they trust engineers as well. And that's interesting because why? Why would you trust us? Because we have this ethos of duty of care. 
And when we, are, when we add duty of care for change to low carbon, change to sustainable, that sort of thing, then, then we're going to get it. And so that, that's sort of where transition engineering is, is it's, it's another practice in a long list of 100 years of these corrective practices that have happened because they needed to happen. All right. Can you talk a little bit about the, the economics of transition engineering? How does it work practically and what is the impact? You know, what is the impact on the economy and like and going forward? Right. What do we expect the impacts to be? Well, there's two main things. One thing is that we look at the biophysical economics. Now, what that means is we look at energy return on energy invested. We look at service return on goods invested. So, so we look at things that don't actually depreciate. So energy isn't worth less in the future than it is now. A unit of energy does the same thing for people unless efficiency gets better in the future. Right. So when we look at our energy supplies using energy return on energy invested, we get some really interesting results. And that is that the hydroelectricity um, the use of, of fossil fuels um, for thermal purposes, so coal to make solar panels or, or coal you know, to process steel, something like that, that, that those really have a really good return. Therefore, the economy gets a lot more out of that resource than it costs the economy to get it. Right. When we look at things like hydrogen, they just become a drain on the economy. They don't actually return anything to the economy. They're, they're just a big drain, an energy drag, so to speak. And so looking at that way of thinking about it, materials and energy as sort of things that the economy has to invest to get things back, that, that's a really big one. The other thing that we do in transition engineering is we don't discount the future. So we do all of the normal calculations that you do in design, in assessment of options. We lay out how long that would last, how it would work. And then we actually go into the future in year 10 or 15 or something like that. And we compare options in the future. Right. So what would it be like if I'm a company that has taken option A, option B, or option C in 15 years, which one of those companies do I want to be? And that is a totally different view than the way net present value, payback period, those sort of things look at the world from this point of view, but with very dim headlights where you can't really see very far into the future. Yeah, that, and that's something I really wanted to, to dig deeper on and something I, fa- I found most interesting in the book is from the finance world, and this is something I've complained about and others have as well, is like you, everything is worthless 30 years out because it's all it's it's discounted away right because of the net present value time value of money and discounting things back and one of the things i thought was most interesting and most fun about the book if you can call an engineering book fun i thought it was is the the time you know you say you know time travel going forward in time and i think i remember reading that you thought that was one of the most challenging parts of 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 kind of the process you go through, but to me it's the most fun because I'm I'm more of a story person. It's like, oh yeah, that that sounds like fun. Let's go let's go 100 years in the future and see what where things are. But that gets away from the discounting. You're like, okay, we want to see practically what is going to work and what is not going to work. These are the constraints we have on 
this resource, whatever it may be. So if you're going 50 years in the future, 100 years, you know, the, the example in the book is 100 years in the future. And, you know, you're not using oil and gas to get people around anymore. And what is this, what does this city in Europe look like? You know, and how do people function? And what is daily life like? And we're not discounting anything because you're trying to, you're trying to get to what is actually going to work and what's not going to work based on, based on the math based on the physics of the resources you can use and not. And there's no, there's no magical thinking involved, which is what I really like. True. <laughs> Speaking of magical thinking, you mentioned something that I want to dig deeper on as well. Something that people who you know, listen to this podcast in the sustainability world have probably heard about is hydrogen and hydrogen as a fuel of the future. And I know enough to be dangerous. I've, I've read a lot about it, but I'm not an engineer. You know a lot of what will work and what won't work and what are the challenges. So, you know, we don't have all the time in the world, but we got as much time as you need to explain. <clears throat> Why is hydrogen going to work or not work for the people who, who are interested in hearing more about that? Right. Depends on what problem you're trying to solve. If you're trying right. to solve the problem of I'm a politician and what do I say in front of cameras <laughs> so that I sound good and it sounds like it's all under control and working great, then I, I say hydrogen economy. Yeah. <laughs> but... <laughs> If I'm trying to figure out what do we invest in now that forms a foundation for a fruitful economy and a well-performing society into the future, then hydrogen is, is a folly. It, it doesn't do any of that. Mm -hmm. um, so there's a, there's a pretty big disconnect between the fun that people like me can have with hydrogen. And I do have patents on hydrogen technology, and I've, I've got a lot of papers on hydrogen technology stuff. Because right. in, in research, you, you want to work on things that are really hard. But if you're then going to say, well, this could be what we can do, you either have to just sort of kid yourself or take a really blinkered, maybe self-preserving view that, well, what would happen to my research funding if if people didn't believe in the hydrogen? Well, yeah, engineering isn't about belief, I'm sorry. It's about uh, actual facts. Right. And so the fact is that hydrogen isn't a fuel, okay? It's a chemical that you can make with a lot of energy. So anytime you're thinking about hydrogen, um, we, we have a little analysis that we do to crash test things to see if yeah. they do make sense. Because it's hard when belief is involved. The human mind has been geared or evolved, pre preconditioned to have a big area of belief. Right. Because that's a way that we can sort of stick together on things when, when the world is, is complex and, and scary. So belief is easy to, to trigger people into belief, especially when they're worried or, or concerned about things. But if you're talking about energy, if you're talking about you know, cars or trucks or airplanes, you have to be working with facts, not, not beliefs. And the facts are that whatever you think you might want hydrogen for, Remember that it's going to cost you three to four times more per unit of energy to do it with hydrogen than if you just did it with the electricity or the natural gas that you had. Mm. So is it worth it to spend five times more right. to do the same thing? What we know from history is that spending a lot to be able to do something that you really couldn't do before, sometimes that grows the economy. But spending more to do less that's never 
been good for the economy or for business or anything. So, so hydrogen's just sort of a, a distraction from the work that we need to do. Yeah, so the cost is just too prohibitive and the infrastructure you'd have to build is too prohibitive. And what you'd get out of it, what you'd get back of it, isn't worth that investment when compared yeah. when, when compared to other sources is what I'm is what I'm hearing. Well, is it's that not a source. That's, that's a problem that it, it's a yeah. it's a manufactured chemical right. that has a lot of uses. I mean, it, it's used in industry all the time. It's it's a very, very useful chemical. And right now you could you know, make hydrogen and use it for fuel if you wanted to. And we've we've known about that for for 30 years and nobody has because it doesn't make sense to do it. <laughs> right. It doesn't make sense uh, to do it at that scale. Except for rockets. Right. That It makes a good fuel for rockets for a particular set of reasons. But other than that, um, no. <laughs> so when I want to go to Mars, I can use hydrogen, but not across town. <laughs> to get off the planet, yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, getting back to your son confronting you and kind of mm. what started you on this journey, you know, what are things we can do? You know, what needs to be done to have a more sustainable future and how do we get there from an engineer's perspective? All right. I think it's going to be process driven. Yeah. I know we've had this, uh, what now, 20, 30 years where the idea was that we could do research, we could invest in um, renewables and getting those technologies better. And then when they were cheap enough, they would substitute for the fossil fuels. And that then has really led to putting the onus on the consumer that, you know, the, the end user, it's, it, they're the ones who have to do the job. Right. But that, that's really false. <laughs> it has to be the upstream that does the job of thinking through how to how to take what we've already got because we have to make the most of every asset we've already invested in and reorganize, regenerate, redevelop so that the business or the activity system going forward requires only a small amount of energy in order to function prosperously. I know that energy has been an input into our economy that we haven't really thought about that much until, well, probably the Arab oil embargo. But there again, it was a, an idea of substitution that well, we'll find our own sources of energy and then we won't have to import it and, and that will fix that problem. So always to make sure you aren't falling into the trap of substitution. There is no substitute for fossil energy, but <laughs> it, it is what it is. And that's a very concentrated, very usable form of um, biomass that's been processed and stored. And so the world we're going to in the future that's sustainable is a, is a world where we use that frugally and for important essential things. So that, that transition, you might not have thought very much about that, but but that really is um, what the projects are going forward. And those have to be looked at by the people who currently bring you the artifacts, the machines, the fuels, because you can't do anything about that, right? You, you can't find your own sources of energy. You can't build your own car. You can't build your own phone or your own communications network. So you, as a person, what you can do is to understand that engineering exists and that engineers can do the job of changing things. And when they do, they will think about you and they will help you to figure out how to, how to adapt to the new system. 
So that, that sort of does that make any sense? That we haven't done that before. We haven't worried about the engineers yep. much. <laughs> but put some pressure on engineers that you know. Tell them, look, there's a there's a thing you need to do. I need to get on with it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, when I first discovered you, I saw that you were out in uh, New Zealand, and I was all mm. excited because I because I'd never had someone from Australia, New Zealand on the podcast. And then I, I and then I realized you were just an American like me. I was just so an disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> but one of the things I, I saw that you did is um, you got oh, I forget the name of it, but it's a oh the the Global Association for Transition Engineering. Yeah, we started an international engineering organization. Tell us a little bit about that. You know, you just started it recently. You know, how is that ramping up? And if people are more interested in getting in touch with your local engineer, are there places to go that they can learn more about that? Right. Well, we have managed to get a website up and running. The Global Association for Transition Engineering is incorporated in the UK as a charitable organization. Okay. I did all this research, you know, about 20 years worth of research into how do engineering practices change with time and what what are the processes that are involved in doing that? And then mimicking that onto the mega issues of climate change and, and energy and, and those things and and just seeing that, well, there is a way to work here that we, we have to do. And it's it's not <laughs> it's not a whole other field of engineering like civil engineering. It's a discipline of engineering, which is where we apply a duty of care. And that duty of care is, okay, I know the way something works that I work on that. So I I don't go over and try and do some other kind of engineering that I don't know about. And within what I know, I am going to take on the job of seeing how what I know can change to a safe mode, to climate safe mode. I'm going to work to prevent what's preventable. And then the other thing I have to do is I have to be honest. (laughs) That's funny, but every one of these um, corrective disciplines that have come about, um, fire safety engineering, dam safety engineering, um, chemical hazard engineering, you know, these things have all worked on preventing what's preventable and being honest about what the problems are and what can be done about them. And, and I think that is very telling if you think about it. Yeah. So we knew that we had to have a professional organization because if you're going to be honest and if you're going to work on what needs doing, even if the client doesn't know what they're asking for, then you have to stick together with other professionals and say, this is the way we do it, mate. This is, this is how we do it. It's, my, it's our professional duty of care. <laughs> And so we formed the Global Association for Transition Engineering, and that was done by a bunch of fellows of IMEC-E and Civil Engineering Society and other, other societies called, that, are, that are in the fields. But we have people from all different fields um, working together to establish GATE, the, the Transition Engineering Association. So that's been formed. The memberships are um, rolling in. We're, we're doing our best to administer that. We have the book. That's another thing that all of these corrective disciplines have to have. You have to have a book. You have to have a training program. And that started in 2021. We had Mm -hmm. an online training program from New Zealand. So any engineer in the world can take the course in New Zealand. And this fall in August, I'm starting one in the UK. 
So good thing we have online training now. <laughs> so all, all engineers need to keep up with professional development and the latest in their field. This is a transdiscipline, so it it isn't just for energy at all. It's for, for all engineers. Right. And so that's where we are now. We've got everything in place. EIP, everything in place. <laughs> and now we may have actually hit the point where those of us who've been working on this so far don't actually know what the next step is because we're just going along teaching, training, organizing, and maybe we, we also need now fundraising or something because we, we do have to provide member services. We have to um, disseminate knowledge. We have to get a better website. Our website's okay, but it can always be better. So yeah, I think our, our next step is uh, membership awareness and, and somehow finding a grant or some funding to really kick up the services and the training that we can provide. Before I let you go, we always give... Our listeners a little homework at the end of the, end of the podcast. And if they haven't gotten done by now, it's going to be your book that I'm, I'm going to recommend. Okay, great. And Transition Engineering, Building a Sustainable Future. It goes into, of course, a lot more detail than we had time here. And it's a great read, especially for someone from that's not an engineer by trade. Because all of what's going on in sustainability, there's a lot of, lot of information out there. And you really need to get down to what is practical, what can work, what will work. And I think this book and this discipline kind of walks you through. So by the end of it, you have a better, better understanding of some of the ways you can do that. It does, you don't have to be an engineer. It might help. No, you, have to you be an don't engineer. have to be an engineer to read the book. And <laughs> I, got, I got through it. I got through it. And I'm not an engineer of, of any, of any, in any way, shape, or form. And to think differently about the problems that confront you, whether you're an investor or whatever you are, it's always great to bring another perspective to things. And so that's why I found it very useful. So I'm sorry I stole your thunder of, of what, what to recommend reading. But is there anything else, anything, you know, in your research, things that you look at that would be a, a, another great resource for, so, for folks? What should they be looking at, listening to, watching, reading to better educate themselves on kind of the nuts and bolts engineering of things and what will work and what won't? Ooh. Well, I don't know if you need the, the the engineering part. What I'm really researching now is that think differently thing that you just said. Yeah. In transition engineering, we call it flipping the perspective. So you're used to looking at something a particular way. It looks very comfortable that way. And you have to purposefully pick it up and flip it over and look at the dirty underside or the other way or something. Yeah. Because we are looking at the world in a way that is not taking us where we want to go. So we have to train ourselves to look at it another way. And so anywhere where you can get like psychology of being able to do that, like maybe innovation, product development, that those are two other areas where you purposefully look at things another way that you, you just, you haven't before. Right. Maybe the, the psychology of why, why are we so future blind? I, I read a book called Future Blind and it pointed out all the ways we are future blind, but why? Why are we so future blind? Is it because sustainability for 100,000 years was about not changing anything, doing what we always know will work, right? Following yeah. our customs and our traditions and staying away from our taboos. That works. Just stay with it. Yeah. And now we've innovated ourselves into a space where we can't stick with what we know. We actually have to change our directions. And and that psychology is really where things are at right now. That's what we need to understand. Yeah. 
Yeah, we've been able to take our environment for granted for the last 10,000 years. It's just always there, always stable. And now we're finding we can't. And so we need to bring a different perspective to that. Right. And just be, be aware that we are ill-equipped for this right now. We have to evolve and learn quickly. Exactly. Uh, quickly, is, I was going to say, and, and time is of the essence. Quickly, yes. that's, a, that's a great way to end it. Read the book quickly. Sure. <laughs> hey, it's a quick read. <laughs> yes. Well, thanks, Susan. Thanks for joining us. Tend to your cows. I, ho- I hope they're okay. <laughs> and I hope I see you down the road again soon. Sure. Thanks for having me. Take care.